0: Hey, Philorians! I'm Clara.
1: And I'm Danny.
0: And this is Physical Kids Weekly. We're here post series finale for a special conversation with the three showrunners of The Magicians, Sarah Gamble, John McNamara, and Henry Alonzo Myers. Sarah, John, Henry, welcome back to Physical Kids Weekly.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: I also want to take a moment to recognize someone who is on the line and often behind the scenes, an up-and-coming writer whose voice we haven't yet had the chance to hear, John's assistant, Kirsten Stanley. Kirsten, thank you for everything you've done for the show. We can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Thank you.
3: Happy to be here.
4: Kirsten, thank you for getting me on Skype
2: yeah Yeah. Kirsten,
5: thank you for finding John every time I've needed him for the last two
2: years <laughs> Kirsten no I problem. don't I thank you for a thousand things I don't even know where to start
1: <laughs> so we have a lot of questions for you way more than we'll probably have time to get to but our number one most burning question is for you Sarah what's the deal with the candy witch <laughs>
4: I
2: knew it. <laughs> Take it away, Sarah. <laughs> if you, ha- if you have to ask about the candy witch.
5: <laughs> we have Henry, you know what's going on in my head right now because really it's so hard to answer this question
2: We've without had a lot of conversations about this.
5: I can make it. it really
4: I can make it really short. Throw David Reed under the bus now. No. <laughs> well, no, no. No, no. There's
5: nothing
4: to throw under
5: the bus. This was all my doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've been pretty clear for a while now about what the deal is with the Candy Witch. I think last time you heard her mentioned, the tone probably explained what you need to know. And I was just reflecting that tone on Twitter the other day when um I responded to someone who was asking about it. So, um, the I, I, here's here's a question I can answer. All of the people who tweeted me and they were like, "Was she in the
1: finale?" And I missed her. No. <laughs> I was telling people I was like, it was it had to have been like an April Fool's joke. That's what you can chalk it up to be.
0: Well,
2: can I, can I, <laughs> you can, 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 can I frame it yeah. in the terms of, uh, of of the magician's philosophy, which is that sometimes in this world you do this job and you're forced to tell story a certain way and there's certain things that you're always forced to do and sometimes when you get a chance to tell the story the way you want to tell it you want to tell stories any way you want and part of enjoying telling stories is not necessarily following the rules that you're always supposed to follow
6: yeah (laughs)
5: yes but you know we're not I don't know how to even explain. Yes. We'll just go with what Henry just said um, and saying, and furthermore to say, we see all of the people going, what's up with Candy Witch? And we're sending everyone who cares a lot of love. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. I'm not sending them all a lot of love.
0: <laughs> Sean.
4: <laughs> I'm sending them find
2: something else to be concerned about.
5: Oh. Well, love, how about love and a wink. A little wink.
2: Flip. People haven't realized the Candy Witch has worked exactly the way the Candy Witch is supposed to work. Absolutely. (laughs)
5: Totally. (laughs) So get over it. I'll just say this. I'll expand it to one other character. So did Cassandra. She worked exactly the way that she was supposed to work. (laughs) Um, And people have been asking exactly the right questions about both of them.
1: See, I had a feeling that Cassandra was never going to show up again, and Clara was pretty convinced she was, and I was like, no, I don't think so. I
5: really wanted honest, her to. We, we wanted to bring her back in season six, and when Reed first pitched her the way that she appeared in the series, she, he had an idea for how to loop back to her in season six, but that didn't happen, which also is sort of meta when you think about it. Um, all All dangling threads in fantasy shows are, I think, by their nature, meta, so...
0: Well, and of course, it's Cassandra who, like, in myth is the person who people, uh, who always knows the future and nobody listens to. So that seems very appropriate.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there's, there are stories you keep in your back pocket. And sometimes you keep them, like, sometimes you never take them out. But you never know when <laughs> they <they're candy>.
0: Sometimes <laughs> you find them in the laundry years later. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I would say that we've gotten the silly stuff out of the way, but who am I kidding? There is definitely going to be more. Um, But for now, I'd like to ask you more seriously to reflect on the series you created. Looking back over the last five seasons, what sticks out to all of you?
4: Um, How swiftly time passes, except for Wednesdays. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's it.
6: Uh... (laughs)
5: This was, this was so much fun. This doing making the show has been so much fun. I mean, it, that's not to say it hasn't brought with it all of the stresses and pressures of television. It has all of those, and it has the the very intense kind that you face when you're producing ambitious, modestly budgeted television. But it it's been really fun. I mean, we really like the people we work with. We've gotten really, really close to the writers and. A lot of the actors and directors and our crew and you don't always get that a lot of talented people are assholes but there has been a marked lack of assholes on this show um so you know the opportunity was always going to be creatively really rich and exciting and worth uh challenge but we kind of got the best of both worlds because everybody's just been kind of a dream in my well, now the,
4: the dream is over <laughs> 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 it's oh. like that line from the fly when he's the fly, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, uh-huh. and he says to uh, he says to his uh, girlfriend, "I think I was a man. I think I was an insect who dreamt I was a man, and now the dream is over."
5: Oh. <laughs> Fun while it lasted. We had a good, good moment of being fly. that guy and sitting
4: down on the chair with perfect balance. Brain, <laughs> until the girlfriend blew his brains out with a shotgun. <laughs> All right, <laughs> the end of the fly. <laughs> so.
5: <laughs> you want to follow up on that, Henry?
2: <laughs> you know, I've had such happy memories uh, with uh, John that uh, there are sometimes he uh, this is this is the this is the John you get, and I enjoy every John I get. <laughs> John, you get in
4: the writers' room. You basically only see the bottom of my feet. <laughs> So You're actually way ahead of the you're game here.
2: Well, God, the, the the bottoms of your feet are always uh, probably more expensive than the tops of most people's feet. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, For listeners, I like to I like to uh, be in the writer's room in a very steep reclining chair. <laughs>
5: yeah,
4: and a really, medically prescribed it. chair. It <laughs> and also, means that you're also the bottom of his feet.
2: <laughs> yeah, but also where all, you're always wearing uh, excellent shoes. Usually, uh, uh, a suit of some. Form. you know you're always well it's it's a it's a it's a it's an outfit that's put together
4: mm-hmm. the shoes are actually were actually a gift from sarah the ones i normally wore
0: henry do you have anything to to add about about the show about um sort of what <laughs> I, sticks I mean, out yeah, to you
2: it really is hard for me to point to any given moment i would just say that the the thing that i will miss the most is the uh, feeling uh, that i have which is that i uh, Every day I woke up excited to go to work, um, which I know is a a blessing. It's not something that everybody gets. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. I love what I got to do. I love the people that I got to do it with. Um, I love the stories that we got to tell. Um, Not that it wasn't stressful and difficult, because it definitely was at times. (laughs) But it was a good kind of stress. It was a good kind of difficult. It was the kind of thing that you, you you enjoy doing. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's the thing I'm really going to miss.
1: Understandable. So part of what makes The Magician so compelling, both in the books and in your series, is the way that it uses fantasy to work through difficult real life experiences. Can you speak to that? How did your personal experiences shape the story of the show? And were there any specific storylines that came out of your personal experiences?
4: Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. I can't think Absolutely. of one that didn't come out of personal experiences. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Certainly, um, certainly, I was very, very, I think one of the very first things that popped into my head after the, the pilot was shot was to do an episode where Quentin wakes up at a mental hospital, the same mental hospital he's in in the pilot. And again, sort of with the theme of dreams, he's being told that everything he, experienced in the first three episodes was a psychotic break mm-hmm. and that this was his reality i loved writing that for reasons you'll never know <laughs> and it was our few it was technically our first musical
1: technically yes
4: it certainly was a situation wherein I, 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 I can totally count as our first musical because when i pitched it or outlined it or whatever people looked at me like you hey, what mm-hmm. they, <laughs> they they what and I actually had to show uh, our director, um, Jamie Conway. is a wonderful director who I'd never worked with before. And it was early days on the show. I said, no, just watch the scene in the lobster house from My Best Friend's Wedding. Where they all sing the Dionne Warwick song. The Burt Bacharach-Dionne Warwick song. And he did. He watched it. He goes, oh, yeah, no, I know how to shoot this. And I'm yeah. like, good. Let's, let's see if it works. But that was an early memory, I thought, of of, of accessing things I really personally kind of cared about mm-hmm. the difference between moments in your life where you're like, you kind of know what's real, but it kind of also doesn't quite seem real. And are you like misinterpreting what this person said? I and mean, it's all about perception and it's all about how perception shifts constantly in real life. Uh, even the perception of, am I crazy? Am I sane? Am I happy? Am mm-hmm. I sad? Um, it, we get to really write about that. That was just, a, and also I think we broke that story in two hours.
2: That was the fastest break we ever did on the show. It was, yeah.
4: It was unbelievably fast. thought you were still in your garage. This show is going to be a breeze. Cut to, <laughs> <laughs> cut to episode three oh nine. Not badly, yeah. but not usually. Episode three oh nine, co-written by me, was the longest break. I think it was six weeks.
0: Oh well, wow! <laughs> and you've just talked about like. Two episodes that people regularly cite as their favorites. Like I, I, can't tell you how many viewers I've heard say, like I wasn't sold on the show, and then I saw one hundred and four, and that and it yeah. was over for me. Um, and for three hundred nine, yeah, like,
4: like I actually think I can tell a story now because I no longer work at UCP or sci-fi, nor does this executive. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, don't you, Sarah?
5: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it if you didn't. So go ahead.
4: <laughs> that. An executive who shall remain nameless, um, deservedly so, uh, very (laughs) high up in the corporate uh, chain of command at UCP, really did not like that script for 104, Mm. and said in a call, in a way that I can only describe as monumentally condescending, said, I think this is the perfect season two episode, because we'll establish this world, we'll establish all the characters, the audience will then really be fooled, and I said, I'm going to stop you right there. That is a great note. If this was the year 1998, mm-hmm. but the audience is 20 years smarter than that, and so the earlier we do this, the more it's going to hit. Yeah. And he said, "Why are you so confident?" I said, "I'm really not. I'm just not into doing a big rewrite." <laughs> <laughs> this guy, unless unless you're telling me to pull the episode or you're going to fire me, I think this conversation's kind of what over.
5: There were so many times we we were like. Uh, we used the quick card or the fire card in season mm-hmm. one to sort of push. Um, and by we, I mean, mostly John. Uh, <laughs> John was, John was the guy wielding that power. Uh, but we fought really hard for those early stories. Can I yeah. answer the question too? Yeah, yeah please. absolutely. And, please too. And, and,
4: and more nicely, probably, and funnier.
5: <laughs> you know, I'm gonna be I was planning to be sincere. So oh, gird your loins. Um but I, I think what um what they said is right that we had a a, a group of writers with diverse experiences and really rich source material. So So much of the personal stuff that feels um, like it resonates with different people in our audience, it comes from something quite close to life experience or actual Mm. life experience. Um, You just... Not always the life experience of the person whose name happens to be on the script, but we, we all... It was a safe room, or we tried to make it a really safe room. So, and also, there no one was under any obligation to claim a story. So, if somebody wants to talk about sexual assault in the room, they're under no obligation to say this is what I'm saying is valid because I myself experienced it. We just all had this sense that we were coming from a place of great respect for these more difficult subject matters. So that. As an overall, especially for the stuff that, you know, was darker and more complicated, the Mm -hmm. mental health stuff and the sexual assault stuff, and the sexuality stuff. But I will say one of the things that I really enjoyed, especially in the early seasons of writing the show, is there were so many characters who were young women.
6: Mm. I
5: got to put this very specific stuff in their mouths that... Mm. I had talked about with other women, but I hadn't seen on TV things like when Alice says that she kind of secretly knows she's the smartest girl in town, but she's terrified that if she tries to achieve her potential, she'll like die alone. Spencer dies alone, eaten by cats. That's a conversation I've had with other women before. And the conversation that Julia has with the like scientist magician, where she's saying, if the world comes after you, take it as a compliment Mm -hmm. in season one, I, I just had this feeling like I didn't expect it necessarily when we started making the show, but the show became a way that we could look out at the audience at all of these smart young people who have been feeling weird about that, Um, especially, I think, women who have an ambivalent relationship with their own intellect and have been given a lot of mixed messages about what to lead with in our culture and say, you have so much power inside Mm -hmm. of you. Um, and you can create the kind of life that you want to create. We also didn't say that would be easy. It was incredibly hard for those characters, uh, right up until the last episode. But that became a little secret mission of mine in, in making the show, just to make sure we never, ever, ever dumbed that idea down.
6: Hmm. Henry's kind of I can
5: see Henry, we're on we're on Skype video here. So I can see uh-huh. him kind of smirk, a little loving <laughs> smirk. <laughs>
2: I, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have a deck of cards that I play that I that, that since I've been doing all these Zoom and Skype calls, this is what I do when I fidget. It's my fidget toy. No. Uh, so, I'm like literally shuffling. Uh, saying, um, did you just
5: say you were Quentin, basically?
2: I'm, I'm doing yes. Doing, I'm doing tricks. Um, is, and, and none of fun, us noticed.
5: Sarah's no <laughs> uh, a
4: just, huge jar of clear liquid. It looks like moonshine.
5: It's, it's it's either water or vodka. In a okay. huge
4: mason
2: jar. <laughs> well, water comes in a mason jar, doesn't it? No? <laughs> <jar>. <laughs> Everything in Culver City comes
4: in a mason jar.
0: <laughs> what are you drinking, uh, John?
4: None of your beeswax.
0: Ah! <laughs> <laughs> All right, Henry. Sorry to
2: interrupt. It's okay. I was going to point to the second episode I wrote on this series was this episode, Homecoming, which was uh, oh, on its so surface good. kind of a, a super had kind of a uh, some silly elements to it because, you know, it was about a Penny being lost in the Netherlands, couldn't find his way back, and Alice and Quentin had to figure out a way to cast a bit of cooperative magic and in the process face Alice's parents and <laughs> own relationship, and they had to have, uh, and, and they had to talk about sex. And that was yeah. a, everything in that episode. I, I, it was really, actually really important to I me mean, not to, you know, I, I like writing about relationships and about, sex and real subjects but not in a way that it was just silly or plot driven but that it came from like a real place and so there were several conversations in that that were real relationship conversations that i've had in my life that i tried to infuse you know the, the show with And i remember having long you know i remember I kept doing rewrites and kept doing rewrites, yeah. and I. This is a rare thing where I was. I I was going to Sarah and being like, I want to rewrite this scene because I feel like <laughs> it's not deep as it could be. And Sarah's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, the point was to try to do an episode where it felt. We had like a really – I remember having an intense talk with Olivia and Jason uh, and the rest of the cast early on with that one. They wanted to do a table read, and we hadn't had a table read. So we did like a private table read in one of the trailers, Um, I think because they were worried that the subject matter was going to be silly or just Mm. joking. And uh, the the, the tone on that one was to try to keep it real. So, I mean, I can – point to a bunch of moments but i can say that that to me that was the one where i was like we're trying very hard to not just have this be a joke and to have this be about human moments and i can you know i can point to several of those human moments although my parents are nothing like uh alice's parents but i did know people who had parents like that (laughs) (laughs) in the you know in the hippie town that i grew up in
0: (laughs) 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 so We've read some of your interviews about the finale and we know that you tried to write an episode that could function as a series finale as well as a season finale, even though you didn't know, know that you were being canceled at the time. But of course, TV involves a lot of compromise. Is there anything that you wanted to include in the series finale that you weren't able to either in the script or that just never made it in?
4: Yeah, sixth season.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean. (laughs) <laughs> i wanted i wanted to do the, i wanted us to see the cozy horse uh, yes. uh right the end of it, and yeah. that was not something that we were able to do uh, effects wise but uh you know because we were we were putting we our money the in the, into the yeah. building up hillary it's pick yeah. one makes sense
5: no that was a big one the cozy horse we talked about that
3: quite a lot but
2: I, mean, I love the ending of that third book uh and yeah. the, and how they you know it just is it's a special moment but we, but we kind of hat tipped the cozy horse earlier on in the series, and so at that point we, we kind of were doing triage about what can we, what can we, what can we actually do that we haven't touched on, you know, and uh, I mean blowing up Fillory was this was a, <laughs> we kind of had this moment. I remember discussing this with with my partners here, but the, where we were like, well, if we have to go out on any one big thing, I mean, hmm. that's as finale worthy as you get.
4: Mm -hmm. (laughs) that and that and what and may may i just remind everyone that i one of the keys to episode 12 was for me santa gets in a knife fight and dies (laughs) right i'm so upset that that never made it (laughs) i just really
5: wanted to have christmas
4: I what the I'm with you, Sarah. He was, gun- <laughs> he was, he was going to die heroically attacked by like one of the golems, and he was going to do that cool William Shatner Captain Kirk wall kick that makes no sense. <laughs> if you've ever seen it, just look it up online on YouTube. <laughs> then get shivved in the back by a golem. And I pitched that so hard, and I got shut down <laughs> so hard. It was like high school all over again. I was just shamed. <laughs>
0: Thank you to everyone who shut
2: Jeez. that down. Sorry, John. <laughs> John, will, will, you, will you pitch out the ending the, to that episode, though, that you had written out, which we had to cut oh, for...
4: That was actually, I'm sort of being facetious about Santa, but not really. Um, <laughs> but the one that really, truly bummed me out in, at the end of 12 was it was a massive episode that was over budget, like from the outline stage. I had to make, with the other two writers I worked with, uh, Ellips and Joey Morales, I had to make huge cuts... During prep, which is always kind of like uh, juggling chainsaws on a, on a bicycle. And um, the first thing I had to cut was the, what was the original finale, our original final scene of that episode was everyone's back in the apartment. All the characters in the musical are seeing the Jackson 5 song, I'll be there, mm-hmm. and kind of in in pairs to one another or in singles to one another. Like, you know, Zelda sings it to uh, Marina and so forth. Anyway, the button was, the door opens, Penny and Julia walk in, and Penny goes, Wait, we missed the musical? And Julia says, Thank God.
1: <laughs> that would have been hilarious.
4: That was the most painful cut of the entire series for me.
0: <laughs> but we sort of got a bit of that, uh, a, a bit of that uh, thank God type thing from Marina after the first number. Mm-hmm. That was good. Yeah, it was
4: also, that's, I also love that song. I think the cast would have just killed it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: definitely.
6: So I wanted to sort of
0: ask, as a as a quick follow up, uh, what were what were sort of the main important beats, less in terms of plot and more in terms of characters that you mm. that you wanted in there. Like, what were the things that you sort of saw as the heart of the finale from the character perspective?
5: Uh, just growth, I think. Irregular, hopeful, imperfect. One step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back—kind of growth. And we tried to capture that for each of the characters. We were quite methodical in the room, and then Henry and I, as we were combing through each scene, we would say, uh, "You know, where did Julia? Like, let's when you when you talk about Julia in season one, what do you think of?" And and the overwhelming feeling is how alone she was. And so it made sense to just highlight that she's still Julia. She's still uh, compulsively solving problems throughout the universe. <laughs> Um, saving the day all the time uh, that, you know, not everything is fixed in her relationship, but that she's not alone anymore. Uh, And so, you know, we, we kind of comb through every, every character and, um, you know, we, we got to put some form of punctuation, I think at the end of their sentence, it's not always like, I don't think it feels too final, but I don't think life is like that. They're so young and really they grew up in the course of the series. So for me, it was plenty to just be like, well, you know, Elliot's going to try it with Charlton. Maybe it's supposed to work. Maybe it's not. We had a lot of season six ideas for them. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just the idea that he would even be open to something like that, that what had happened to him over the course of the series wouldn't cause him to throw this person out of the physical kid's cottage and just go mm-hmm. be debauched to like almost the point of death as a response to such a vulnerable, tender hearted conversation. Um, to me, I think speaks volumes about the growth of that character.
2: I also thought that Hale played it perfectly. He had this weird <laughs> kind of like, uh, you know, he had this look on his face like, you know, I'll try this. Sure. <laughs> maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe this is what I should try.
4: I've tried literally everything else. <laughs>
2: I feel like that was the arc we talked about the most uh, was the was the Elliot one because that was a lot of that that took a lot of the m- most kind of forethought because you know we we felt like he couldn't we couldn't throw him into a new relationship kind of I- immediately after dealing with grief and we had a lot of stuff that we wanted to tell about grief that that I think uh, would have stepped on that uh, but we thought maybe arcing him towards a place where he might be open to that. And having something healthy um, you know, seemed like a, a worthwhile goal for him. I think so, some of those things we arced out, some of them we found in the moment. I mean, we knew we found in the moment. I know Sarah and I discussed a lot of stuff as we were writing. Uh, I, I want to say we knew we wanted Alice to have um, a moment with the library. Um, mm-hmm. And we had done this thing mm-hmm. where you know she has her fingers cut off and she's sort of feeling uh, uh, like she's lost her power. Uh, but Sarah had—I I, want to say—we were doing—I don't know—one of many rewrites, and Sarah came up with that little bit uh, between her and Zelda, which I just thought mm. was perfect mm. um, because we we had been really looking for a moment to put a kind of a, a bit of punctuation on on her relationship to the library, and I feel like that really—I I thought it was a great kind of a uh, uh, culmination of her whole arc as a character, you know—and really does and,
5: kind of go back to her being like, I'm afraid to step up to my full potential for reasons. And then you see her step up to her potential.
2: And, and also how she recognized that, you know, grief changes you. Grief might make you feel broken. Um, it doesn't mean that anything that about you as a person, it just means that in fact, once you embrace that broken part of yourself, you become more powerful. And that's the moment that I really love when she comes in and she says to herself, like one hand is enough. Uh, I think that that, I love that bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also love the Margot stuff. Uh, like that was mm-hmm. the I, – I, I wrote that section where the where Fillory gets destroyed, which was a super joy. And there were other things that uh, – I'm only sad because we had one take, and we didn't have a take where it worked um, because of the emotion of everything else. But when she uh, takes a bite of the ham sandwich, <laughs> she takes a bite, and she pauses, and she says, God damn, that's the big – I think I want to fuck this sandwich. <laughs> 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 which was my favorite my favorite line uh and then uh and then in the emotion of it it just didn't work so we cut it <laughs> but i feel like her the expression on her face was enough you can mm. tell she, won't that that she wanted she wanted to
3: fuck the
1: sandwich <laughs> yeah <laughs> hilarious all right um well what it- can you tell us I was going to say, before we move
0: to the next question, did you want to talk about the uh, the Elliot and Charlton stuff?
1: I mean, we can. Like, did it make sense to you? Why it, uh, why it ended
5: <coughs> the way it did between Elliot and the Dark King?
0: We have no. different feelings <laughs> on this.
2: We yeah. have yeah. uh, very different feelings. I have a gift for you, Danny, which is to say that there actually was a kiss with the two of them. A very mm-hmm. passionate kiss. Uh, which we ultimately trimmed because it kind of undercut the, there was like a beautiful moment between them and it kind of, it, it, we felt like it undercut it, but we, we went there thinking like, we should try this. Um, -hmm. and a lot of what you do, you know, when you're editing is, is trying to make sense of if, if something feels real or if it, if it, you know, actually works. Um, and they had fantastic chemistry. I mean, they really worked better Mm -hmm. together, you know, but part of us were feeling like that, that, what was so great about them was that they didn't quite happen was the longing for them to happen that's Um, what made it it, a
5: tragic story really the idea that like if the if sab could have let go of his past if he could have let go mm -hmm. of um trying so hard to undo this failed love affair from before then he had someone standing right in front of him that we know is incredible i mean we know all about elliot we could be Um, selling Elliot to anyone on planet Earth, right? Because we've been watching him (laughs) for five seasons. But, um, you know, that's why, I think that's why people have such strong feelings when they watch that arc. I mean, I don't, I never comment directly on shipping. I feel like that's something fans get to do. (laughs) That's you, you get to feel all your feelings and root for the team you want to root for. And then as writers, we just, you know, we're writing the story, thinking thinking about things in a slightly different way. So sometimes there's some teams in the writer's room, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's meant to feel like the hugest missed opportunity. Like if, uh, you know, and, and also to really highlight that Elliot is doing incredibly difficult work in trying to move forward and trying not to use magic to go down an incredibly dark path that could ruin him and everyone around him could literally destroy the universe. Right. Um, because when you look back at your life and you realize that there is love that you left on the table and that you um, ran away from something because you were scared in the moment and you just want to do over the temptation to get stuck in that. It doesn't matter if you're a magician or not. The temptation to get stuck in the mistakes that you've made is so strong. Uh, so, I guess we uh, successfully evoked that <laughs> in a way that annoyed people when they didn't kiss on screen.
1: <laughs> At least give it to us in the the DVD, Blu-ray cut. <laughs> it, it does exist. It does exist. Yeah, I want. I want to see that. But for me, like, I I like I loved them as a ship, and like I've said before on like our past podcast, and and to Claire, it's like. I could believe Charlton. I guess I just wasn't ready for it. <laughs> it was just so immediately afterwards, when I was like in this like mindset of like, oh, they're definitely gonna get back together. Like it was like right there. I
2: guess I guess it didn't. I don't. I don't think of it as a as a r- relationship. Like what he had with the Dark King was this incredible chemistry, you know, and and mm-hmm. they, and they had a lot in common. But the but one of the things they had in common is that the is that you know Rupert couldn't let. Um, you know his love go, but Elliot learned that he could, and that to me was the real difference. A Rupert's story is a tragic one, um, and so I, I sort of think of it like this relationship that he has with Charlton is like day 1. We're not trying to say that like, you know, that they have this crazy amazing chemistry, passion, but that here is somebody who has been around and knows Elliot deep down and yet yeah. is still and knows all of his flaws and yet is still interested in him. And in some ways that's a more that's a more mature basis for a relationship and I and I yeah. love that Elliot was open to it at the end. And I, like I said, yeah. I think Hale played it perfectly because I think he didn't play it like Oh my God, I'm in love. He played it like, uh, okay, like maybe I'm open to this. Like, let's try it.
0: Well, and I think so. Danny and I have ta- have talked about this a lot, um, so many times, <laughs> multiple times on the record, in
4: fact. Probably um, more than, than Sarah Henry and I. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, so one of the things, one of the things I've said, which I really stand by, is I I agree with I think the sort of heart of what you're saying, Henry. That I I like what uh, that relationship represents for Elliot. Independent mm. of relationships and, like, shipping, though, I do think that one of the things that is that was hard for both me and Danny in the finale was feeling like Elliot's arc didn't end happily. And, I, I mean, I know this is a show that is not always big on, on happy, but with him being separated from Margot, it, it felt so
1: hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely the hardest.
4: The, um, the thing I, that I... Love about this show that I never expected would be sort of the DNA of the show in every episode is is the very thing that is, I think, you know, creating strong feelings in, in, in both you guys, which is the magicians does not ever claim, never has claimed to tell you what you want to hear about life. Yeah, It tells you, from our point of view, the way life really is as we, the three of us and other writers and directors and artists have experienced life, that our, our biggest goal is to just not bullshit people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that can be, you know, that can be tough. That can be hard as a, as a, as a viewer, as a fan. I mean, I watch Casablanca, right? Great movie. Everybody who's seen it, remember? Like, you totally think Humphrey Bogart is going to end up with Ingrid Bergman.
6: Hmm.
4: He doesn't. He actually pushes her into the arms of Paul Onreid, who's totally boring compared to Humphrey <laughs> Bogart. And that's why that's such a power. If they did ended up together, it would be just one of those movies on TCM that nobody talked about. But it's a classic because it reminds the viewers, living your life the way you have to and playing the cards you're dealt is the only choice you really have. You can't yeah. always get what you want as uh, As the Rolling Stones...
5: It is a thing we were contending with with being on the bubble when we wrote the episode also. On the one hand, it took a a little bit of pressure off to just make everything end. But I don't know. I don't think we wanted to feel like we were... Like everyone had totally resolved. That really would have felt... First of all, I just felt like if we evoke um, strongly that they're trying to find each other, that kind of tells you a little bit about what the next story is going to be. But this it's not as though this is the end and then you turn the TV off and those characters die, right? (laughs) That they're going to continue on their quests. Um, But also that like, I don't know how old, how old is Elliot in our timeline? He's about 28, I think, or 29 when the, when the show ends. And um, he has so, he contains multitudes and he has so far to go. So I, I, I might have um, felt it a little more hopeful, partly because there were writers in, my, in our ears going, do you really want to be this optimistic <laughs> with mm. the, with the finale? I mean, shouldn't this be more of a bummer? It's the magicians. Um, and we landed on this note. I guess it's what we really felt about it. Uh, but I relate so much to, um, to that period of life where you have your heart and then you have, I'm an adult and I have, uh, like a sex life now, and I'm trying to figure out what my sexuality is and where I'm going with that. And then the heart is like this, sometimes a completely separate animal that you're just trying to understand. And I feel like where we finally got at the end with Elliot, which is something I, I had been scratching at every time I wrote a scene with him for years and years and years. It's like he's protecting his heart inside of this so frequently. He'll, you know, he had the craziest sex life of them all <laughs> over the course of the show, except maybe Josh, who had more orgies with magical creatures. But, um, uh, you know, but he, um, you know, that part was just, uh, you know, he 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 really knew how to have fun But um, to see his heart start to crack open a little bit, and that you know, it frankly for me also in um, my the younger part of my adulthood, frankly that that happened in really challenging circumstances. That didn't happen because I like went to therapy and it was really easy, and then I just made good choices. Um, It was like a lot of stumbling and a lot of making bad choices and a lot of pain and a lot of being alone. Um, So I guess. Uh, all I can say about it is, I guess we were trying to be as honest as we could about that.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, what you guys are saying also just reminds, it just brings me back to um, the quote from the first book that Lev wrote. And it says, you know, if there's a single lesson that life teaches us, it's that mm-hmm. wishing doesn't make it so.
6: Yeah,
1: and That's always been one of my favorite lines, just because it, it really resonates with life.
5: Yeah.
1: But I do want to say, though, I did love, I really love the touch of At least, like, you know, Rupert gets to be with his sister. (laughs) Like I I just thought that scene was really beautiful.
0: It was really nice to see him have a happy ending in a way.
1: Yeah. That's one of those scenes we might, you know, that
5: was on, it wasn't on the chopping block, but we spoke among ourselves about, like, this is the happier ending for the Chatwins. And um, uh, depending on the future of the show, we have to decide whether or not it goes here or somewhere else. Uh, But... It was for, That was definitely a serious finale
4: choice. For what it's worth, I totally wanted Rupert to die in a cool knife fight. <laughs>
0: what is with you and the knife, fights? knife fight? <laughs> you should have done a knife <laughs> fight with a bear, and then you and David both could have been happy.
2: <laughs> oh, the day would be well, sad to see the bear lose a knife lose fight. Knife fight.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Uh, Danny, it, it could have been worse.
1: <laughs> it definitely could have been worse.
4: Think about that.
1: <laughs> okay, let's move on to our next question, which is, what can you tell us about your collaboration with Lev? How did that work, and what kind of input did you seek from him?
4: Hmm. You know, I just remember being incredibly nervous to show him the first draft of the pilot. I bet. For a myriad of reasons, some of which were we'd made some not huge changes think the pilot is. Pretty true to that section of the, the first third of the book. Um, I think it was more like I never, I don't think I'd ever really interacted with a living uh, author that I was adapting I, that I could recall. And mm-hmm. we obviously wanted him involved because early on, we, why does the, let me ask you this question why does the hard line of anyone's home ever ring because no one ever answers it? Like, when are they going to get the message? I basically have this phone line so I can have cable. Anyway, um, it was just really, it was interesting because we had so much respect for him, and we knew his work, and he didn't really know ours. And so there was a kind of an imbalance of power, uh, mm-hmm. at, least, at least in the, in the relationship, as, as far as I could tell. And he was also so gracious and open mm-hmm. from early on, I, I figured it had to be fake. <laughs> and that the other shoe—he was going to reveal himself to be this monstrous narcissist. And if anything, he just got better and better and better and better as a as a as a resource, as a collaborator, as an editor, as a critic, uh, as a fan. I mean, and the thing I'll always remember is how much he would push us, even in the pilot, to not feel like we had to use his. Material. I can't remember what the scene was, Sarah, but there was like one scene that was almost verbatim dialogue from the book, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh God, please don't use that. That's really that. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't like that."
5: <laughs> I remember feeling like on the one hand, I mean, John was much bolder and engaging with Lev on Lev's criticisms or, or you know notes on the pilot. I was just sort of terrified of him for a bit, but I, we had this. Um, sort of dialogue love and I, that was a lot about the fact that I, uh, of the two of us of John and I, I had written more fantasy for television, but the show that I'd written like a hundred or, or worked on 150 episodes of was supernatural, which is essentially a cop procedural, but with demons and nice. like a classic car instead of cops <laughs> and mundane crimes. And, um, I'm so glad that I felt insecure about that. Just that I felt this sense that he was worried that we would allow the the magicians to devolve into a monster of the week kind of procedural broadcast network show, which by the way, those work, Um, Supernatural went 15 seasons and it's an amazing show, but like I had already done that show, (laughs) loved it. Like the magicians is a much quirkier, stranger, more quest heavy kind of meta beast even than Supernatural. And so I I found myself talking a lot to him in that language of like, here are the ways this is not going to be a a, a show like a, a hunting show you might see on the CW. And what was really great about that is I feel like it accelerated my understanding of what the show, the magicians was when we were in the room for season one, people would pitch different creatures and problems and myths that we could bring to life. And chances were, I had probably already heard of that creature because I have Googled every fucking creature in the history of the world. When you have to pitch, <laughs> you know, six or eight potential episodes, six or eight times a season for seven seasons. <laughs> like I I have like a master's degree in demonology from working on <laughs> Supernatural, but it made the road so clear to me so soon because it's like I had Lev's voice in my head saying, this should be stranger, this should be nerdier, Mm. this isn't about winning, this isn't about they go into a town and they have a win, this is about like, it's hard to learn things, and there's a lot in the world that you cannot change, and you're going to fail more than you succeed, so like, for me, the perfect example of that in season one is when they go into the haunted house, and they find out the real story of Plover, if Sam and Dean Winchester had gone into that house, they would have saved the ghosts. They would right. have released their spirits. And then those children could finally be at rest. But because it's the magicians, I understood implicitly by that point, thanks to Lev, that Alice needed to have an emotional breakdown at the end of the episode because she yeah. can't save those ghost children I, and they're just stuck. Um, so that was sort of, uh, since I, you I, made me brave enough to talk yeah. to him, John.
4: <laughs> well, the only reason I, I mean, I, I didn't really give a shit about fantasy, um, to be blunt, <laughs> and And I didn't really I'd never heard of the novels. And Michael London, who was my producing partner on uh, the movie Trumbo, is the one who had been trying to produce an earlier iteration uh, of the show with different writers at, at, at I believe it was at Fox. Yeah. and that fell apart for I think mostly budgetary reasons. It was just the the writers who are very good writers wrote a huge feature size. It was a thirty five million dollar I've, I've read that script. Uh, no, I never, I've never you, read
2: it. You've never read it. Now, now, hey, Sarah, now we can read it. We can read it. <laughs> the on it's, the it's, it's, I like it's those writers really, very much. So. They're really great. And it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting, like, I'd other way to go. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a big, big budget. I mean, it I want to read that. But
4: <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know, so I came into this just like, Ambivalent is the kindest word I could use to describe my state of mind. I just I was writing a historical drama and I was writing another historical drama and uh, you know I like science if I like anything I like sort of hard science fiction in the sort of Gene Roddenberry Michael Crichton school. So I just wasn't that blown away or impressed until I got to the ending of the first novel.
6: Hmm.
4: And I was in this exact room sitting in this exact couch, which I should probably get a new one because that was seven years ago. (laughs) And I just got this, like, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It was like a revelation that you guys have all experienced for years as fantasy fans. For me, it was like losing my virginity. (laughs) I just said to myself, oh my God, he's saying some of the meanest, hardest, cruelest, Truths about life that I've ever read. Like, it's as, it's as powerful as, you know, Dostoevsky or Fitzgerald or Hemingway, but it's in fantasy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just made it my goal, and Sarah, thank God, agreed with me, and Henry and everyone else. We're not going to bullshit people. I think it's just sort of struggling back to the same theme over and over again, but it's like, we're not going to give an audience what it wants. We're going to give the audience what we think is true. And there really, there really are only two kinds of art, if you think about it. There's art that reassures and tells you you're going to live forever, and it's all going to be fine, and the good guys are always going to win, the bad guys are always going to and all the couples that you want to get together are going to get together. And then there's art that says, no, I'm going to tell you what life is really like. From my point of view, you're free to disagree, but rarely do the good guys win rarely is there an ending that isn't ambivalent at best. And, you know, rarely do the, the, does the couple that you want to get together get together. And if they do, they get married, they're miserable, and they get divorced. <laughs> that's life. I didn't, I didn't make life. You know, I basically just was born with a pair of eyes and a pair of ears and a big mouth. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's but – I, but I was so struck by that. What Sarah just said about what would have been the supernatural way to end 109 versus the way we ended 109 <laughs> – is not a knock against Supernatural. You know? Oh, God. Man, no, no, no. I'm so not, like, I, my favorite show. series of books and movies by far are James Bond.
6: Mm-hmm. There is no
4: greater. But the good
6: guy
0: always wins
4: for me. Oh, my God. And, he, and he's white and he's British and he's rich. It's disgusting. <laughs> you know? He's a misogynist. In the books, he's kind of a racist. Um, but it was a fantasy fulfillment for Ian Fleming, the author. Whereas John Carré if you've ever read his mm, novels yeah. and contrasts, that mm. is life the way it is.
3: Or grand you know, funny, Raw and yeah,
4: brutal. Exactly. If you, if you win, it comes at such a huge cost, it's, you even question whether or not it's worth winning. That's the kind of stories I like to tell.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually, I love endings that devastate me, so God. it's okay.
4: That one, I'm just reminded, of how, that that ending was probably the most brutal ending of that season. And that was, <laughs> the first season was a pretty brutal season.
0: Danny, I'm gonna send you the Quiet
4: American. It's oh. short. <laughs> Wait, Quiet American, the novel? Yeah. It's not a short novel.
0: It's only like 200 pages.
4: <laughs> no, no, no. It's a well, it's a long movie. <laughs>
0: it's, fair enough. The movie's also good with Michael Caine and the, Brendan Fraser's best role.
4: <laughs> brilliant. It's a it's a brilliant book and it's a brilliant, brilliant movie.
0: You'll never I'm look at Brendan Fraser again if once you see that. Uh
4: huh. <laughs> it's, it's so true. You're so so right god i love that fucking movie Mm
6: -hmm.
4: now
2: i i came onto the show after these these guys had already established a relationship with lev uh and so one of the things that had been set up was that lev would read every draft and he would watch every cut and would send you know notes sometimes voluminous sometimes short uh and you know we would nine times out of ten take the notes because they were you know because they were interesting and thoughtful and came from the inside. I was wondering if you guys would tell, there was a story I remember from season one where he had an issue with a, something about Julia. I don't remember what it was. Her and soul. I want to say, I want to say, it wasn't actually, it was in, It was earlier than that. Okay. And I want to say, uh, uh, John, you said to him, you should write the scene, I <laughs> if did. I recall. I did. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a fantastic uh, so I feel like less.
5: he should give you ten percent now that he's a screenwriter because I think he bought <laughs> Final Draft to take a stab at that scene. And now he's writing movies and all kinds of stuff.
2: Well, I think he, you know, he quickly realized the challenges of writing drama, and uh, but but also some of that stuff in that scene. I remember, I, Sarah, I want to say that you took some of that stuff and we put it into a few episodes, if I'm not mistaken.
5: Well, there's uh, there's no uh, there was no defensiveness. I mean, I wanted him to like what we were all doing um we tried to be really upfront about the fact that you know the needs of television are different the beast comes in so much later in the in the book and i'm never bored reading about all those classes it's just not enough for a tv pilot when you're trying to get picked up to series you need to do something really crazy at the end of a tv pilot so we moved that up and then i was Mm -hmm. sort of like okay so this new challenge is just to talk to an author who has a different job about what that is but you know he was such a treasure trove like you know, he would he would explain just these little things about what he was thinking when he created mm. the physical kids and yes, um, you know, and there was I remember an early draft of the pilot where we had a scene, probably some version of the scene that ends up with um Elliot and Quentin walking across the quad with Margot, um, and there were like some people tossing a football in one mm. corner, and he was like, just to be clear, you are under no obligation to have a single jock in this entire school. <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> maybe there's a jock who's also really smart and nerdy. Um, but it is not like a regular. Uh, it's not like a regular cross section oh, of an American so high school or college or graduate school. These are all of the most intense, most anxious, most nerdy. Everyone had all AP classes in the tenth grade, and now they're they're at Brakeville's. So oh, wait a uh, minute. You know, you're saying that, that
4: that that what Love was pitching us was a kind of wish fulfillment.
5: In a certain way, yeah. The world,
4: no job. <laughs> I, can read
5: that. I
0: was <laughs> one of those.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I remember that note. It was hilarious. Huh.
0: Um, I know this is a sensitive subject, but I wanted to take a moment uh, to ask.
4: Not for me. You go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I-, I wanted to take a moment to ask about the season four finale and Jason's departure. Um, not sort of details about that at the time, but what did you learn from the experience and from the fan response and is there anything you would do differently whether in the show or outside the show knowing what you know now
4: there is nothing I would do differently and what I learned is I like what I like some people share that like some people don't some people are very kind in expressing their dislike some people are fucking assholes the end (laughs) (laughs)
0: What about the rest of
5: you, Henry? Did you did learn anything, Henry? I, uh,
0: I mean,
2: I, I learned. I think I actually learned that uh, that 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 uh, Twitter thrives on hatred. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I also bit. yeah. I, meaning, I, I and I actually don't even mean that. I don't mean that as a joke or a cruel like kind of you know a uh, 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 snide remark about it. I mean it genuinely that it is a as a medium. It thrives on outrage, and people being upset. So when something is out is upsetting to people, it drives traffic. You know. So there was a so our lives were uncomfortable for a little while. I believe that you know online, but my life was totally fine. Uh, I would not. I actually agree with John. I would not make a different creative decision from what we did. Um, you know, sometimes you are dealt things that you just have to work with um and you have to choose how you work with them and i actually think that the that you know and 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 some of that was was you know jason leaving the show and a lot of what we did was lean into exactly what john said about uh, you know about the two different kinds of art that you are either telling people something that they want to hear or you're telling people that something about that's uncomfortable about life and you know i i respect that people get uh A comfort from the show because I I think that that's wonderful. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think that they get a comfort from the show. And they may not realize this, but they don't get a comfort from the show because the show condescends to them. They don't get a comfort from the show because the show uh, peddles a fantasy about the way things should be. There is happiness for our characters. Um, There are moments of genuine joy and connection between them. But a lot of what they deal with is real and suffering. And I think that that actually whether people realize it or not, is part of why people are drawn to the show. The people who are drawn to it are drawn to it for that reason and because we don't lie about that stuff. And to lie in that moment or to present it in a way that isn't suffering would not be true to the show that we were making. I also
4: Um, think, and I've to, to jump on what Henry just said, I think that that ending, that season, now that we have now seen the series finale, that season four finale has aged really well. Agree. Because the audience that came back saw that we were not just going to blow past grief, that grief was now going to become a really, really big part of of, of the show that would that would alter its shape forever and would alter these characters forever. And yeah. if you can't accept the fact that we're all mortal and that everyone on this lovely Skype call we're all going to be corpses someday. If you really live with that fact, then you're really going to enjoy your life more. You're going to enjoy every sandwich more, to quote Warren Zevon. if you realize you don't have a limitless number of sandwiches. And as a storyteller, I don't want to tell the audience it's always going to be a happy ending. Every hero wins. Every hero lives. It's bullshit. It's just bullshit. And, I mean, if people want to watch bullshit, they should go watch something else. I, I had that feeling the second I started getting... You know, just mm-hmm. the, the craziness started. I'm like, then just fucking watch something else. Don't
5: watch I, will be, I will be honest with you and say, I don't really know the perfect way to deal with um, people very intensely coming at you about something that you've put out into the world in the year 2019, 2020, in the very direct, um, also quite anonymous way that Twitter provides. Like, I don't know. I, I pick Elaine as somebody who has been writing stuff consumed by a lot of people for a lot of years. And there's never been a time (laughs) when people were not coming at me about it. I feel like I'm uh, somebody who attracts a lot of that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not special, I'm which just is like a weird, Sarah. Human you're, person. <laughs>
4: you're I am, but you get attacked yeah. way more than I do.
5: I mean, She's I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to lean into that too much, I but I. I think it's probably not a coincidence that I get like ten times more of it than my male counterparts. And I'm, i I. don't usually like to t- like to talk true. about that, but I, I want to say that because a lot of women yeah. are listening to this podcast, Good. and non-binary people are listening to this this podcast who are thinking to themselves, "It's is it going to be." harder for me if I put myself out there Um, I mean objectively yes but that doesn't mean you shouldn't put yourself out there and um, you know, some of what I saw uh, I I mean frankly I felt like sometimes people were reacting to things that weren't in the episode Um, but I I feel like at a certain point your work is out there and if it's misunderstood and if it's misunderstood either because people are are very upset or because they disagree (laughs) with what you have subsequently said in an interview or whatever it's like I can't, um, I can't say that I know the perfect way to thread that needle every time Um, I, you know, I I come from a a place of having such a deep, innate respect for the audience and um, a sense that we have all kind of come together to take a look at this story and that the contract on the magicians as on other things that I work on at this point with um, a lot of really cool people is just that like nothing cynical is happening in our making of this story. We're exploring things that we don't necessarily always know the perfect answer to, but that are genuinely thorns in our side. And the only way that we can get at them is through art. And that is true, including in a moment where, for example, a character dies heroically, he does not commit suicide. He is someone who has had suicidal ideation and has spoken about it on the show. And we talked about that a lot in the room. And we talked about that as a group of people, many of whom have had very intense suicidal ideation. Um, And I won't get any more specific about that just because I wanna protect everybody's confidentiality, but none of us, I think is a stranger to having a hard time, a really genuinely deeply hard time. And for me, where I am in my life today, it is incredibly hopeful to think that the sum of my life is more than my darkest moment, is more than the moment that I look back on and I'm like, well, I really did not have my shit together at that time. I was really overwhelmed by my own brain and uh, I couldn't even see past myself in that moment. I was in so much pain. And we met that Quentin. We met that Quentin in um, the pilot, and he was not that guy by the end of season four. I understand why people might have metabolized the episode that way. Like we, we, we asked the question, you know, in the episode because that for us just as a group of artists who are tackling something difficult that we don't, we're not masters of it. We're just people who are experiencing life and trying to write about it. Um, That to us was the most honest way to go. You know, like if I meet some guy who's been kind of a dick to me in the underworld, (laughs) but I've Mm -hmm. been through a lot of shit with him and I die the way Quentin died, I will probably ask the same question that Quentin asked. And I'm not going to ask it so that everyone that I left behind worries about it. I'm going to ask it because I had a big wide life that had some really fucking low lows. And it made me, it made me very sad that people didn't read it that way. I frankly felt there were some bad faith readings. I'm not going to lie. There were some people who got kind of swept up in the anger, but that's not most people. A lot of people were just metabolizing it and ingesting it from the place that they were. But like, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't do anything but have essential respect for it. I was very young when I watched Buffy. When I watch it now, I don't get pissed about the same things I did when I was 16. I get pissed about different shit. When
6: I watch <laughs> it out.
5: But like, you know, we're 18 or however old I was when I saw it, and um, I, you know, so I, I I understand that, and I feel like I, you know, everybody has to decide what kind of parent they're going to be to their projects. And so when you say like, would you have done it differently? Would you, you know, it's like I we saw it happening there were some really sweet people asking questions and I, I just speaking only for myself, I tried to always answer those questions when they were asked by journalists, when we were put in a position to be able to speak at length, not in like 280 characters. And, you know, is there a better way? I don't know. Maybe this is the best way that we could find at the time. This is the best way I could find at the time. So
0: well, if, yeah. if I can speak, I, um, I don't think there is a perfect way. Period. I mean, <laughs> that's that's just my personal opinion as someone who strongly identified with Alice this season. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's something to sort of send that I, you know. In I mean, in a lesser way, Danny and I struggled with too, is feeling like um, we had our reading to go with when we went to talk about the finale, and yeah. we I think both of us still feel um, happy with our reading of that episode. I don't know, Danny. <laughs> uh, yes or no?
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's a way to tell the story that was told without Quentin sacrificing himself because you can't really continue the series without him otherwise. Yeah. Because, like, why would he just leave his friends and just go off on some quest? He wouldn't. Like, it would have to end that way. And so, there's that and like I never saw it as suicide either um I just felt like it would be wrong for him to have his conversation with Penny without bringing up those thoughts
0: yeah
5: I and I'll say you know there I have such respect for people who just have a different philosophy of what you know, a show that tackles difficult subject matter what it does. And, you know, I was getting a lot of uh, uh, people asking a lot of questions or telling me who I am as a person when Julia got raped in season one. Um, And we knew that would happen before. You know, they've been telling it. People still come at me about stuff from like 2007 on Supernatural, you know. Um, It's like. I, and I, I have always had this strong feeling that, like that, you should you should listen to that voice inside you that says, "I don't like it when people say it that way. I think it should be said differently." And then you should go and say it that way. Um, but nobody said what they said on this show from a place of trying to hurt people. We're trying to yeah. illuminate the most complicated parts of ourselves using this beautiful world that Love gave us to play with, um, and we do it whimsically and we do it very seriously and you know, we, we take it to the places that feel the most challenging to us and people don't always agree and people don't. And, you know, I have dear friends who make television shows about mental health issues, about sexuality, about gender identity and their philosophies of why a show is made and what you do when you give your story to an audience is different than mine is. And I think I fundamentally believe that's okay, so I fundamentally am going to just mute you at a certain point, and then you are screaming into the void because I sent you love, and also I have a job to do, and they hired me to tell this story the best way that I can. So we, and you know... This is the kind of conversation we had with all the writers. This was several writers' first rodeo when that happened. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, mm. I think any if you're going to make something that um, touches people, if you're going to try to make something that's not totally fucking bland and boring, you're going to get a certain amount of it. And yeah, if you're a chick, you'll get a lot of it. So, you know, it's like best to just embrace that and then kind of try and figure out how how you can set your life up to keep working and to just keep exploring.
0: Well, and, and the thing that I wanted to say was that I think I, – I, for, for me, at least, um, in doing the podcast, uh, there was sort of a turning point moment for, for me at the end of season four where I started to realize that, like, uh, I, in, in a weird way, it's sort of when I started to feel like an artist myself. And part of that comes from sort of having to embrace what you believe, but part of it also comes from trying to figure out, okay, what are my responsibilities to my audience, and yeah. you know, for us, both as uh, both as queer women um, creating this podcast, that's been a really hard question that I don't think we have the full answer to, right? Like part of asking this question is trying to figure out how do we how do we have a good conversation about things that were very hard for a lot of people in our community that is respectful that, Mm -hmm. um, recognizes all of the complications in creating a piece of art that, um, exists and knowing that no matter how we have that conversation and no matter what the people we're talking to say, it's always going to leave people unsatisfied and maybe angry.
5: (laughs) Well, that's because there's not enough diversity in storytelling yet. And the onus won't be on you to represent every queer person in the universe when there are more queer stories. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and and like the the magicians doesn't reflect exactly what every gay, queer, not quite straight person in the world wants to see because we're not trying to. We can't. It's not possible for us. Um, We can only encapsulate a certain amount of stuff, you know, it's like, there's a genuine unfairness. So it's this weird thing where people get so worked up because these are needed stories and people are not talking enough about the stuff that causes them pain. There's like a deep trauma in these Mm -hmm. various communities and these various groups of people that anytime somebody opens their mouth and tries to speak about it, and then doesn't reflect the pain the way this person wants, of course, it fucking hurts. It really hurts. But the answer is, you know, perversely to tell you maybe go on Twitter less and write more, <laughs> you know, like speak more, write more. We need more of you. Yeah, um, well, and when there's so many of you, yeah. you know, then the onus will be spread out just a little bit more reasonably.
4: I no, Nothing about the, the backlash really upset me until I heard you guys are getting threatened, like with violence. Mm. And that there were people too who were threatening to do self-harm. And, you know, that's where I became really surprised and disappointed in what some people who, who purport to love a thing then turn on the thing, which is totally fine. You know, I love the first three Star Wars. Not so much the next six. <laughs> do, I go on, do I go online and threaten to kill XYZ person? No, you know what? I don't because I'm an adult. I have pretty good manners. And I realized that they're just artists just trying to do their best. And if I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't. And I'm not right and they're not wrong. And the minute like literal physical threats came into the conversation, uh, I went from being as 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 understanding and as empathetic as an Irish angry <laughs> narcissist can be <laughs> to like seriously go fuck yourselves. I mean, you know don't like it don't like it but like stop threatening Sarah stop threatening Clara and Danny stop threatening to hurt yourself because in one case, I'll just say that there was a an online threat of self-harm and Sarah and I contacted the police and the police went to see this person and confessed immediately that they just wanted attention and yeah. I Imagine the cops gave them a very good talking to that they deserved, because that's where I—that's I, when I went like, okay, I'm empathetic to the people who are in pain. I am not empathetic toward the people who are either threatening self-harm or taking away, taking a cop who could be responding to an emer- a real emergency and taking their time. You know, it was madness. And now here we are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. <laughs> If you're still in the middle of this, you seriously, seriously need help that no television show can ever give you.
5: I'm sure we didn't plan to talk about this for half an hour, but because <laughs> this is such a soapbox for me when you said that you're discovering yourself as an artist. and yeah. And like this is really what like in some days it's what gets me up in the morning is the thought of. Um, you know, pe- all kinds of people, but especially women, feeling that Bernie needed actually pursuing it. And so, can I also just say, like, making art is not really optional, it's part of what makes us human. And if you find a medium that resonates with you, that shouldn't be optional for you. You need to protect that. Twitter is fucking optional, right? You don't yep. have to go on social media if it's hurting your feelings. You don't have to listen. If it's hurting your feelings, you can find, you can take your time to find a way to contend with it because the important thing to protect is that little voice inside you that's trying to find form. And as long as those are the right priorities, then the rest of it is fucking noise and and you can take it in over time or not. So I don't know, sorry to get on a soapbox, but like, I just got really protective (laughs) as we were talking about it. And you were like, they're being mean. And it's like, they need to shush because you're busy working and becoming the artist that you're going to be.
0: You know, I would actually say they, at least for my, from, for me, they don't necessarily need to shush. I mean, it would be great if nobody ever sent a death threat to anybody ever again.
2: I'm a realist.
0: (laughs) Um, That's not going to happen. But in some ways, what we, what like the experience of sort of seeing that and processing it and really thinking about the feedback that wasn't death threats, Did Mm -hmm. is it made me more convinced that this that this is the thing that I want to do? And I don't know that (laughs) I'm I'm sure not everyone will have that reaction. But just so you know, (laughs) I'm not going to stop being good. And you're right; it's not
5: they need to shush. It's like we need to figure out how to shush. Yeah, Yeah. I've got like a a large committee of my own in my head that's telling me all the terrible (laughs) things. I don't need to
3: add to
2: it. It's often, I think that the so much of this is that when when they are expressing their feelings. That is their right. When they are telling you how to live your life, that is where things kind of cross the line. Like uh, part of building a writers' room and 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 writing is kind of figuring out what are the what are the circumstances under which I can find my voice and making the and and guarding those circumstances with your heart. Um, and you know, part of what we have struggled to do on the magicians was to create a very safe space for a very small group of people to just feel all the feels that they want to feel in this one room about all of these things and not feel judged and not feel critical and feel like it's a safe place to say stupid things and to make dumb jokes and to, and to like talk about the most embarrassing, most uh, heart wrenching parts of your life um, in ways that uh, ultimately are entertaining and help you to think- deal with it.
4: I think I was also very fortunate because I had my first play produced off Broadway when I was 19 and the New York times took a giant shit on it. (laughs) And I was 19 years old and I was devastated. And the next day I got up and I was 2% tougher Mm -hmm. about Mm. criticism and Fortunately, I think I've gotten more bad reviews than good reviews. I've had more flops than hits. Um, I've had more people say no than yes. And at 58 years old, I uh, I'm I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm just not going to listen to any voice in my head but mine. And like Sarah, I have many critical voices already <laughs> to deal with. Um, they've They've been there much longer, and they're much more articulate. Uh, and they're in a way they're they're more rational. Uh, and I guess. The takeaway for me was, and I'm really sorry to say this if you're some of the hate-mongering, bullying assholes who made threats if you're listening to this podcast, but first, go fuck yourself. And secondly, I'm more determined than ever to write things that make you angry. As long as I'm telling the truth and I'm not going after anybody or any class or any, any, you know— I'm going to tell the truth, how I see it, and you might not like it. That's fine, but in a way, it made me more determined. So, sadly, that tiny loud pylon has had the opposite effect of what you wanted. Congratulations.
0: <laughs> uh, since we're all loud people, and Danny's a kind of quiet yeah. person, I just wanted to give her a chance to Sorry. say something <laughs> if she uh, if she wanted to. And you don't have to. I just wanted to give you the opportunity.
5: I know, I've been watching your face during this, but the, but not everybody who listens to that can do it, so you should probably say <laughs> words about it.
1: <laughs> I mean, like, I think that's, like, like, what Henry was saying. I think the thing that upsets me the most is when people tell you that you're feeling a certain way or that you're wrong or that you should live your life a certain way. Um, like, that's what upset me the most, is, like, there's this whole mob mentality behind it where it's, like, It's almost like they convinced other people to feel that way and they didn't initially feel that way. Mm -hmm. And like basically telling Claire and I that we were like bad queer people for thinking differently and. Or not queer people in my case. Or not queer at all. (laughs) Yeah. I'm apparently a big fat liar. It's the stuff like that (laughs) that upset me the most was just people telling you that the way that you see something is incorrect and, like, you're wrong. Like, that's what upset me the most, I think. And I definitely took a long, long break from Twitter. And I've just learned to block and mute a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: and related to that, to Sarah's point, and then I promise we'll move on because we need to talk about <laughs> something fun before we all perish. Um, <laughs> Is,
4: Come on, this is fun. <laughs> I think, but <laughs> oh, I think to, sort of rel- relating
0: some of what Danny said to to Sarah's point about right. Like, I think it's that you have to find ways to mute the voices in your head that try to argue with it. Because whatever whatever they're saying, right? Like, when people try to tell you who you are, your job is not to tell them who you are. It's to it's to know who you are. It's to mm. know okay, That's very well put. I am, right, like, this is the person that I am, and I, right, like, because this is the person that I am, and these are the values that I have, this is the way I'm going to go from here. And I don't feel quite as, uh, like, fuck 'em as you do, <laughs> John, though I certainly appreciate where that comes from. You will, you, you will, you
4: will from. when you're my age.
0: You know, I, I don't think I will, but I appreciate the sentiment. But I do think that there's—if I'm, if
4: I'm alive, let's check in. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> um, but I do think that there's right, like the way the thing that I really learned over the last year was was on that. It was that my biggest bad habit in these moments is trying to defend myself when people say that they know things about me that are wrong. And I actually had a moment the <laughs> other day because I, I tweeted something. Um I, I tweeted something and there was like a lot of responses to it and it was a good conversation, but there was there were a couple people who who made assumptions about what it was about. And I caught myself in that moment being like, mm-hmm. I, I just want to tell them why they're wrong. And so I turned my Twitter blocker on <laughs> and <laughs> left the room. <laughs> um and it was right, like those are the moments that I get proud of. Because the thing is, whatever, right, like it's not my job to tell them if they're right or wrong it's not my like none of that is my job it is maybe my job to listen to the kernels of other people's truth in there Mm
6: -hmm. um the things
0: that they're feeling and where it comes from and all of that hurt um and then to process that and do with that what my values tell me to do but it's not my job to defend myself to them or to myself so i don't know that's my soapbox. And
5: now... I love what
4: you just said. <laughs> yeah, me too.
0: I love it. I don't know. If, when you guys run out
5: of magician stuff to talk about, I feel like you should do a podcast about that. <laughs> really.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good idea. idea. Sum it up poetically. To thine own self be true. Block.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Very true.
0: And on that note, Danny's going to take us back into fun territory.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. So let's balance that very serious question that went on for a very long time with <laughs> some fun and talk about Todd. You know, mm. I <laughs> <laughs> you know that I couldn't get through this interview without bringing him up. You're just so, Ta- wearing, Houston's wearing a, Todd. a Todd
6: shirt. Oh, yes. nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Todd has always been such a delightful like, side character. Yeah. I have a few questions, though. Why did he just keep coming back? Did you ever envision a finale with him in it? And is my Todd theory correct? I don't know if you guys actually know my Todd theory. No. No. No? Do you, okay. you know Henry, right?
2: Theory, I believe, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I think you should say it. Yeah, I, I think, think you should, too. I, would say, I, would say <laughs> okay.
1: I was just clarifying that people knew what it was before I would explain it. So my Todd theory is that Todd has always been more important than people believe him to be. And that for one, it was revealed in season four that his name was is actually Elliot, which I just found <laughs> hilarious. Um, Thank you, Mike Moore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I always envisioned him ever, ever since like the mosaic episode, I just like could never get like Quentin and Elliot's like son out of my head ever. <laughs> and so From my neck onto itself. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> well like in, like, these fantasy things, it's like you just never know what can actually survive a timeline, you know? It's like <laughs> there's so many Facts. things, like, going Fair. in and out. There's, there's so many things going in and out, like, um, people from other timelines can still come to the future
2: mm-hmm.
1: in this new timeline. So, but my theory was that somehow, you know, like, their son survived and had, like, basically, you know, sons and daughters, and my theory was that Todd would be one of those descendants And it just cracked me up that, like, ever since I had that theory, like... Basically, his name was revealed to be Elliot, and I thought it was funny that he chose Todd, which is actually like a couple letters off from being Ted, which is actually his son's name. And then it's just like, it's that, maybe
0: it's that graphic you posted the other day. I've connected two dots. Yeah. You have connected, I've connected nothing. Connected
5: all the dots. He also frequently calls Elliot Dad.
0: Uh huh. Yeah, yes. Was that. On the show. that was the big piece of evidence.
5: So, that was the big piece. If nothing else, we can say it's a damn good theory. We he backed like, up with a lot of.
1: Adam you just can. also looks a lot like kind of like he could be related to them. And it's just like this whole thing that was like really funny. Like I'm, it's kind of just been my crackpot theory can of I the pay, entire can series. Can I pay you a,
2: a compliment? Yeah. Uh, which is to say everything you're doing is actually what we do in the writer's room. Um, <laughs> that is to say you, you take a bunch of disparate elements, which I'm, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it. But a lot of these were completely weird, random things that had to happen that happened randomly. I mean, Todd showed up initially in a script that that uh, John and Mike uh, wrote, uh, and at the time we were like, "Why is he wasting all this time with this guy named Todd?" Oh, but this is an incredibly funny scene. Right. Um, And then we were so unbelievably fortunate to have Adam DeMarco show up and do this role, and it was he was captivatingly funny and you never know when that's going to happen but he mm-hmm. ended up just bringing this wonderful energy and then it became like oh weirdo. we have this canadian we have this canadian actor who is a which means he's a much more available for us we can bring him in for a day to do fun little roles let's do him because he's great um but like so you you end up peppering all these things together but what you do in a writer's room is you look back at everything that you have and you say what if this was actually a story that we had planned for that's exactly what you're doing. So, I mean,
0: <laughs> well, I'm just going to put know, it out ins- there that Danny is currently on the job market. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got to get those specs going. You do. I, know. I definitely will. You
0: should definitely write a Todd spec.
6: <laughs> Ooh, I'll write second.
1: <laughs> the, Todd, the Todd spinoff that we all need. Oh. I jokingly earlier today was like, no, Todd and Charlton should be endgame because they're both just so ridiculous (laughs) that it would just be perfect. (laughs) Well,
4: you have to throw Hyman in there. Oh
0: yeah, well the brie of course. I feel like we have shipped. We shipped both Todd and Finn, and Finn and Hyman, um, and I definitely like. 10 hyphen, hyphen 10, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I still feel like it could go any or all of those ways. And I would personally yeah. love to see her be open to a polyamorous relationship.
1: <laughs> well, a lot of people are all for Josh, Margot, and Fen becoming like a throuple. And I, I feel like that sounds right.
6: <laughs> well,
5: Florians yeah. are naturally pretty polyamorous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think Fen computes that as a... Uh, Uh, anything extraordinary the way that those of us raised in this weird judeo-christian culture do uh but Mm -hmm. you know so she's fine with it i think she'd scare hyman for one thing i think i think she is a more realized person (laughs) than he is uh but that would have been a fun thing to explore hyman's trajectory (laughs)
6: <laughs>
2: I mean, I, I know David Reed told you that we had a we had a big card on the board all season about uh, uh, Fenn sleeps with uh, uh, Hyman, the hundred uh, year old virgin.
6: <laughs> yes. uh,
2: which I was delighted about when we put it up at the beginning of the mm-hmm. season, but we just could not find a space for it.
5: By the way, (laughs) Fen is the same story as Todd. We have a lot of these stories on the show of just actors coming in to do their jobs and doing them so well that we keep writing for them. Um, We didn't have a particular idea of what to do with Fen beyond just have her be this arranged marriage that the most unlikely person has to get into. uh, But because Brittany is so undeniable and just kept deep in it, the scenes would come back so full of life and so deep because she does such great work. Invited us to keep writing her.
0: Well, thank you for the the Log Lady episode.
4: (laughs) um, But because I'm the Prince of Darkness, (laughs) I like to (laughs) always the counterpoint, which is in the pilot, up until we shot it, Dean Fogg was supposed to die. And Sarah and I had both worked with Rick Worthy before. We love Rick. And it was supposed to be a total guest shot, one off, right? An actor who shall also remain nameless, who was intended to then become a a series semi-regular recurring. That actor behaved so horrendously on set and so unprofessionally that I did what I had to do, which is basically like, okay, say your lines, you're wrapped, get on a plane, thank you very much, I never want to see you again. I then walked across the room to Rick Worthy and said, guess what, Dean Fogg's going (laughs) to (laughs) live. Because I just fired that. Other human, and he's like, "Thanks, man." <laughs> <laughs> so it can cut both ways. It can be like someone is talented, but they're just so awful to work with. Mm-hmm. You just have, the, luckily, you have the power as long as you stay polite and within the boundaries of the law, which can be difficult sometimes. <laughs> but you have the right power to say uh, that rectangular hole on the wall—that's a door. I'd like to see you on the other side of it and never see you again. <laughs> well,
0: any anything else about Todd?
1: Before we yeah, on. was he ever supposed to be in the finale? Did you guys ever imagine him in the finale? It, it's not a
2: confrontational awesome question guy. at all. Uh, no, i wasn't. <laughs> Well, uh, he's a series regular
1: just, on another show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I know.
2: Yeah. We we would have used him a lot season mm-hmm. five, but he mm-hmm. was ava- we, he wasn't available as much to us. He was as like on like like another magic it, show. Yeah, Yeah, he
4: was just a pleasure to write for and work with.
5: Oh Can my I tell God. You the but thing we watched the most over and over again, um, all season long in post, was the moment he explodes. They, <laughs> did it, they did it just in the monitor on the day they did a rough version of it. It's like it's, you know, it's a, it's basic split screen, and they, like, explode like a water balloon full of watermelon chunks or something. A, it was actually
2: a watermelon full of blood and okay. water chunks.
5: <laughs> so they, they superimposed it on the day, and then the first time we were all in post and – the editor was like, "Get a load of this!" and played the moment, and we were howling. From then on, anytime I went into post, I was like, "I'm ready to work, but first I need to watch Todd explode."
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danny literally screamed when she saw that scene.
2: <laughs> I thought it was so good. I, I was thinking of you, uh, when we, when we were, uh, I was working on it with Elle, and you know, there was a point where it wasn't like, going to be an act out, and then I was like, "You know what? It's we're not going to fake out that Todd is dead. Let's just." Kill him, and then go all the way through to have Todd walk into the scene because that will be a much that mm-hmm. I haven't seen before.
1: That was <laughs> hilarious. He's just like, "Whoa, <laughs> did I just die?" <laughs> <laughs> Adam's delivery, just and all of the that entire episode oh, is just perfect. He
2: is a delight. Yeah, the whole series. He's just. And, so- and I assume you've seen the, the L posted it the 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 full version of the Todd song. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Uh, well, he did you hear my husband's remix? No. I haven't. I'll, I'll send it, Henry, I'll send it to you oh, and to Kirsten awesome. afterward and you can distribute. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, all right. Uh, so I know you've avoided giving specifics about what would have happened in season six if the show had been renewed. And I totally respect that. But... I'm curious, as fans of the books and writers who care deeply about your characters, what do you hope their futures hold? Like, if you could write a Harry Potter-style epilogue that took place 10 years later, hopefully a lot better,
2: would you? what would you hope for each of them?
0: Oh.
5: Hmm. Everyone has their thinky faces on. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, well, you know because I don't lo- you know I actually love the Harry Potter play, but I did not love the epilogue uh, for, to Harry Potter until I saw the play. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I haven't seen the actual play, but when I read the like script version that they released, yeah. I was like, this is awful. So I've been wanting to see the play because people say it's better than the like it's script the, written the, version. It,
2: it is very uh, I will say that the, the you would be amazed at the, what they do theatrically. It's really, really, really cool.
5: Uh, I I do have just a general sense that, especially the characters who get in the most trouble because of their temper or their wildness. So characters like the various pennies <laughs> and um, uh, Katie. Katie and Margot, I would love to see them at forty mm. and see um, what they grow into when their experience and their level of authority matches their passion and the kind of, a lot of times all of that um, aggressive stuff that comes out of those characters comes out of a deep sense of responsibility um, for Mm -hmm. something that they don't necessarily have control over, but they're trying really fucking hard. So it would be fun to check in with them a little later in their lives, just to see what they evolve into when they have, uh, you know, more tools Mm -hmm. to put all of that to.
2: I will say one thing I regret that we never got to do was to see them graduate that was on my way for two years <laughs> and i i love uh i love quentin's th- there's a whole section in book three where you know when, when quentin is a professor where we kind of get this sense of and we see him through plum's eyes uh, and we get this sense of who he is as a person uh and, and he has kind of found himself in some ways found his you know, his magic, find, found out who he is. And I, I, I would, mi- I would love to see that for Elliot. And I would really, the person I would, I would love to see Alice um, and her, uh, I always imagined that she had some connection to the library. I would love to see her uh, find her way there uh, okay. and, uh, you know, become, become uh, uh, the kind of master magician that, you know, mm-hmm. She is revealed to be at the end of the series. I like well, that. Well, at the same
4: time, I love I love the idea that Alice would have a daughter, and mm. Alice would become her mother, and oh, the daughter no. would become Alice. No, because, like, no,
3: uh,
6: Alice will
4: never be her right. mother. <laughs> you always end up.
2: Becoming no, but she your will parent. be a. She will be yeah. a mother.
5: Yeah. No matter how okay, tiny her- the drop of her mom is, it would be enough to drive Alice insane. Yeah, Even of if she just heard okay. one word come out of her mouth that sounded like Stephanie, she would have yeah. a long dark night of the soul.
0: Yeah, can we yeah. just like see her in therapy talking about her mother? That would be a great, <laughs> <laughs> like, side web episode. <laughs>
5: We kept trying to get to the point in the story where she was a librarian. Um, the, yeah. the, it just didn't, we just weren't able to accelerate that storyline quickly enough to get her there. So th- I think the final result of that is that you see her receiving this very important teaching from Zelda in the finale. But they're, mm-hmm. you know, so they're essentially colleagues, but they're not working together. But way back when she was locked mm-hmm. in the library prison, we were talking about kind of the classic librarian style Alice and what that would be.
2: There was a story, I think, Sarah, you pitched it, where um, uh, Alice's uh, dead father comes back and kind of helps her deal with the – like in, the, in, a, in a kind of ghost form. You were talking about it like a drug – uh, where, where uh, it helps her kind of face the grief uh, of uh, what she has lost. And I, I that's a story I really wish we could have done. I, I really mm-hmm. thought that was a cool one-off episode. And if we had had, you know, 15 episodes to do, we might have done that one.
1: What about you, John? Did you feel like you have anything that you'd see for them 10 years down the road?
4: I think Elliot would become Dean. A dean? <laughs> yeah, the, the Dean. Dean. I think he would succeed Fogg and have, you know, just as kind of in his own way though, but just as kind of a flawed tenure as as Dean Fogg. I think he has a lot of the qualities that you'd look for in a Dean uh at Break You know, he's look at that very first line he has in the pilot. You're late. <laughs> yeah. You know also sartorially. Of, yeah, sartorially. And, and the he, drinking. Yeah, the drinking mm-hmm. is very important. Um <laughs> I think he'd be a very interesting Dean um, and a very interesting, it'd be interesting to see him become a mentor, you know, in both a cautionary and positive way. It almost reminds me of the arc of, um, if you've ever seen the movie, The Hustler with Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. And then I love the, that then movie. You see the, and the sequel, I think is equally good for different reasons, the color of money, because Paul Newman, in a sense, at 30, is this incredibly talented, incredibly combative, self-destructive pool hustler. By the time we see him in his 60, in the sequel, he's calmer, he's more measured, he's a lot kind of battered by life, but he's getting through it, and he meets Tom Cruise, who is the exact version of what he used to be. And the question becomes, how much do you try to then change the person, the younger person, who is a version of you. How much power do you have? How much control do you have? I would have loved to have told that story with Elliot and a young student who reminds him of himself.
1: Yeah. So, of all the characters in the show, who do you relate to the most and who did you most like writing for?
4: Margot. Was that Henry? Sorry. John. Oh, John. No, that okay. was John. Margot, Margot, Margot. <laughs> Day
2: one.
3: Alice, for sure. That's Kirsten, right?
1: Yeah.
2: I would say I would say Alice is the one I have the the one I, all, all the BuzzFeed quizzes I always get Alice, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I really enjoyed writing for Josh and I really enjoyed writing for Margot. There's very few I didn't enjoy writing for, uh, but Alice I had a particular challenge because I she's not easy to write uh, in a funny mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of the nature of her character, and so I would push really hard to give her moments where she gets to be funny and funny in her own voice, because um, you don't. Because uh, I, I think it's, it's very easy. If you're lazy to not do that. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the crazy thing is that Olivia is a, extremely, like, a gifted comedian. Like she's mm-hmm. really funny, and she does. She doesn't get to play that mode on the show that much. So, I, I know who Sarah's going to say. Yeah, you do. Wait, yes. why don't
5: you say it then? Because I'm having a hard time thinking of which one. I don't know.
0: Wait, no, don't say it then. Because I, I want
2: I, I, I don't want to say it because. I, I, but I, there's a there is one you have always said to me at least that you connected with.
5: Well, okay, fine. I'll say it. I don't know. The, the show <laughs> is finished. I guess. Like it's funny because everyone's always been like, "So you're Katie, huh?" And I don't know if it's because people think I'm going to punch them. <laughs> <laughs> she threw Season seven punches. Elliot. Um, yeah, yeah, I I think, um, I, I really very much tally it in a lot of ways. And then also Julia, um, from the beginning, I mean, I think being able to like, I think when we first were like, we could turn this into a TV show and I just looked at it diagrammatically and I was like, the difference between an aged up Harry Potter and this show is that this one has a girl who doesn't get in and has to just go out into the world and fight ten times as hard for the thing that's just being kind of handed to her friend, um, that was the thing, I think, that made me want to do the show to begin with. So I've always been, I
4: think, I don't know, I've always really, really felt Julia, deeply. I'd have to add, to Penny, for me. I mm. love writing Penny. I, I love, he was the one character you could always come to just absolutely, maybe even as, as much as Margot, but in a different way, just, Like a buzzsaw through bullshit.
5: I mean, my favorite duo was frequently Quentin and Penny.
4: Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
6: So fucking
5: right. They are so, I mean, they're such a sibling relationship. No, we're we're under no obligation to ever have them like each other because they were so clearly brothers. My absolute
4: (laughs) favorite moment of season one and maybe any season, and we actually had had a phone call with Arjun about this because we're so um, afraid of offending him, is in episode 104. When in Quentin's imagination, Penny is like Apu from The Simpsons. <laughs> and we ran up by Arjun first, and he's like, no, you should go further with it. Make him more awful. Like, make, make Quentin's view subconsciously more racist. And then he called me on the day they were shooting. He goes, how do you want me to say the line, you racist motherfucker? Should I yell it? And I said, I, Arjun, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to give you a line reading, but here's my gut instinct. The quieter you say it, the more impactful and the hilarious it will be. So that when he comes and Penny sees the janitor Penny, you know, talking about, oh, today is the day I love it. Da, 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 he just does this yep. slow turn. Jason who's
0: mortified.
4: He said, but he doesn't. He puts no sauce on it. Nope. He just says <laughs> racist motherfucker. It's just like. Mm-hmm. He knew it. That's why you I, have
5: that nickname for Arjun.
4: Uh, Brando. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, but that was that reminded me that, that dynamic with those two was always really really fun, and also because they were both willing to just be completely unlikable.
0: <laughs> well, I have to say, I feel this is just me bragging because I feel totally vindicated, Sarah. I have always seen you as relating most to Elliot and Julia, so. That's just me bragging about my instincts.
4: <laughs> I'm, I'm
5: so good during the party and then I go home and shit gets real.
4: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get a plug for my computer, but keep, go on.
1: Okay. So I have a question about probably my favorite newish character of the season, which is Sebastian, a.k.a. Rupert Chatwin, a.k.a. the Dark King, which is just way too many names to keep track of. Um, so I just like noticed that it seems like he really is like a true master magician. And I noticed, though, that when he unfroze himself and grabbed Elliot, it seemed like he teleported. Like, is he a traveler as well? Like, does that just run in their family? Or does he have like a button-like device? Like, this is just like a technical question. I'm just wondering how he did that.
5: It's funny because we wrote what we wrote and what was on the stove. so. So here's, un- here's how the sausage is made. So if you look really closely in those scenes where somebody is being teleported, either Elliot or him, he's holding an amulet. Mm, Um, But those scenes were shot at night. They're action scenes. Um, He's also holding it in the scene where uh, the walls are coming down on him and the beast. Yeah, and then he blips away. Yeah, but like we just couldn't feature it properly it was one of the very very few things that got lost in the shuffle because chris fisher shot about 10 times more than he should have been asked to shoot in the time he had um, and so we looked at it again and we were like we gotta kind of attribute this to some strange Florian spell work that he has so if you look at the flavor of the blip remember this conversation henry that we had where we sort of reinvented his oh, big spell?
2: i i remember <laughs> <laughs> The whole I mean, there actually is a whole section where he says there was a line I think we cut where he says I can that spell is hard to pull off even with enhancement. And he's holding this amulet. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very clear that he's using the amulet to help teleport him. And uh-huh. the nature of the teleportation, we, we, we had the VFX guys work on designing one that looks specifically different for how he traveled as a because like it, it, the first time we see it. It follows on the heels of uh, uh, Rafe uh, being being transported out. He's raptured away, and then mm-hmm. we see Elliot disappear. But Elliot disappears in a cloud with a lot of, a lot of little weird little sparkles. Yeah, it's a little it more closer right. to
5: fairy magic.
2: Yes, mm. we, Waves, like... so we
5: have Penny twenty three who can tra- and Plum right. So we have traveling traveling, and then we have Santa traveling, which is Christmas mm. flavor. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was and really <laughs>
1: Uh, I, I, and we have I the very like,
2: Accented magic which is, has this sort of Black cloud with little sparkles in it mm-hmm. And then there's, there's a few other ways That we have uh, A few other ways we do blipping mm-hmm. we, call it, we call it blipping on, In the scripts, but never in dialogue
0: So, our friend Spooky Spice Is obsessed with the body swap episode Because she's been waiting for one since day one And obviously <laughs> we, we kind of Sort hey. of got two body See swap Hi,
2: episodes
0: <laughs> Um, yeah. Did you ever think of swapping any other two characters?
2: Well, it was it, you know the the body swap episode was one of it's one of those tropes of the fantasy genre, and we really required an emotional story that was that, that justified telling it. And when a- Alex, uh, Raymond, and Jay Guard, who wrote the episode, pitched it, th- that was the reason that we decided to do it was that that we felt like we were finally in a place where putting them in the opposite bodies was allowed us to tell an emotional story that we wouldn't tell. Otherwise we didn't want to do it just for fun. We wanted to do it for a very specific, like emotional reason. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was uh that was the reason that we did it at the time. I'm sure we would have considered another one, uh, but <laughs> it's sort of hard to imagine any, you know, I, I don't know. Elliot and Margot seem like the perfect ones to do it with. I think that's fair. At least to my thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's a good answer. Um, So I guess our last question would be uh, one we've been asking everyone since uh, we learned that there would not be a season six. Um, So what has the show meant to you? Whoever wants to start first. Kirsten should start.
3: So I also want to take the opportunity to thank my fellow assistants. I really came into this amazing family. Um, I interviewed with John and Jay and was very scared initially and um, realized uh, he's actually way nicer (laughs) than I think sometimes he likes to (laughs) let people know. Um, so yeah, Alex Tossig, uh, Joey Morales, who was our writer's assistant this year and Sarah's assistant last year, uh, Chris Verdue, Dylan Cohen, um, and then every writer on the show who started as an assistant. Dad so, summer. and Tad, Tad, our amazing script coordinator, killer <laughs> at Foursquare as well. Um, I, it, it's really meant family for me. It's meant, um, I've had, I've learned so much, too, being a showrunner's assistant. Um, I feel very prepared for whatever the next step is. I got to sit in on the room and cover for Joey while he and Elle and John and the rest of the room were breaking the musical episode. um, And also for the finale as well while they were off writing it. So I've learned a lot and I'm really grateful for it.
4: Sandy. Sandy. I did not forget Sandy, I'm so
3: sorry Um, Sandy was great We also had to pack up our offices Which fell largely on Me and Alex Tossig and Sandy And it was really sad to pack up Five years of stuff But um, yeah And Sandy has by far I think the toughest job Because when you're getting people food Writers (laughs) in particular can be very Particular about it (laughs) Um, And he and in the year before him and we've had previous writers PAs Malcolm and Adam um, it's just really demanding and it's long hours you're usually first one in last one out there's a lot of stress when you bring people back their food and you can only do so much so yeah all writers PAs deserve a lot of love
4: <laughs> Malcolm, Malcolm used to call it feeding the zoo animals <laughs> <laughs> I loved.
6: who
2: wants to go next I'll go because I feel like uh, John and Sarah should finish this <laughs> they should have the last words before i had this job i i mean i've been i've been doing this about 19 years uh i've been very fortunate to be able to keep working but there is a point where you start to feel the the you know like any job the grind of the job the difficulty of the job the like the you sort of forget why you do it there's a you know like that's sort of where i was uh maybe six years ago um i was getting offered a lot of uh jobs that weren't the of thing that i wanted to be doing and i grew up loving loving fantasy and and science fiction and and, uh you know that was sort of where my heart was um and i was really 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 i I was coming off a job and feeling like i needed to do something that mattered something that i gave a shit about because if i didn't that i would really really like i would do poorly at it and then my career would be over and then i would be homeless and all of that stuff like that's where your head Mm -hmm. goes um, and I was in Toronto uh, producing a, an episode, and I happened to, because of the AV Club, buy a, a copy of The Magicians because uh, I was looking for something fun to read. And I, was, I remember going out to read it in a bar because I was all by myself, you know, like living in, a, in, a, in an apartment uh, as I produced my episode. And I just completely fell in love with it. Uh, and I remember calling my agents, and they said, well, sorry, it's, uh, it's not available um uh, they were already doing a pilot of it and uh, that was when I remember looking up uh, uh, Sarah's Twitter feed and seeing the vomiting unicorn and <laughs> they were uh, uh, I want to say you were just preparing to start shooting the pilot uh, and so I started follow I started this is I didn't do any Twitter but I started following them on Twitter and I started I was reading uh, Lev's uh, blog posts and I called my agents at the time and I said look they're not gonna need like upper level help because they have plenty of experience, but just please let me meet with them because if they ever look for someone to talk to, because I love these books dearly, dearly, dearly. And and they had spoken to me about, you know, in this deep way, because I felt like they were simultaneously fantasy, but also about the world. They were, they were genre material, but also like not bullshit. Um, And then uh, six months later, I got a call to go and meet with them. Um, And... You know, like I had internalized these books very deeply. I wanted this job so badly because mm-hmm. I wanted something that I cared about, and, and I didn't even—I didn't care if it was going to be a terrible situation. I didn't care about anything. I just cared about these books.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: And I remember sitting there because I read the books several times. But I, I sat there. I had an office space, and I sat there and I and I kind of reread them over three days and just boned up on them and like and found all these moments that I had loved and. I went in and just kind of tried to communicate that, but without being pushy about it, because like I really, really cared about it, and I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to convince them to hire me. Um, <laughs> and it and it uh, uh, you sucker, we wanted you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, but I want to say it, it changed my <laughs> life because I care. I gave. I cared about it. I cared about everything we were doing. Mm-hmm. I, I cared about what we were doing, and 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 it, and I can't tell you enough how that it makes your work. Uh, completely different because you, you, you know, like I work on the weekends because I wanted to, you know, <laughs> I woke up excited to go to work. I would go to work early because I wanted to, because I was already thinking about this stuff. Right. Um, and I, for me, the, this job, this show meant finding my passion again. And Lev tells a story about writing the books himself. That was a weirdly a mirror of that. I found like, I, I felt like I had that experience that he had because of his books and because of, you know, these two phenomenal producers here. And I, I I feel like there's something about the magicians that awakens that passion in people that allows you to figure out who you are and find your voice and, you know, do the things that matter. And so for me, it made me fall in love with writing again. It made writing fun. It made producing television fun, it made me remember why I did this thing. It made me remember why I, you know, like I had a television show on local cable access when I was a teenager in high school. <laughs> it reminded me of the fun of doing that with mm-hmm. my friends. That's right. what it felt. So that was, that's <laughs> what it made.
5: that
4: show. <laughs> it's, it's I'll, I'll go next because Sarah should have the last word. Um, and this will oh, be really quick. No. This will be surprisingly uh, short for me. I just learned that I don't know anything, which is refreshing and lovely. I never in a million years would have thought that the longest running, possibly most successful thing of my entire adult life, career-wise, would be a show called The Magicians. I just had so little interest in the basic subject matter, and it's because I think I was so ignorant. That's all. I was just not exposed. Even though Sarah would send me books over the year of friendship, she'd be like, "Read this short story. Read this book." I'd be like, "Yay!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it'd be on the pile, you know, back here. Until The Magicians, I just I think had this sort of like attitude of, "I don't know what fantasy is. It's just not for me." And it was an incredible experience from the very first day I finished reading the book to the very first day we started writing the script for the pilot through the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth seasons, it was always, always, always surprising in a good way and made me reach down into myself in ways I didn't expect, uh, in ways that were sometimes very painful, in ways that were sometimes very fun and entertaining. Uh, Often the same scene would be painful and fun and entertaining, (laughs) which is the genius of Love's world and the genius of his tone. Um, I got to work with one of my best friends, Sarah, uh, I got to work with another one of my best friends, Michael London. Uh, that was amazing. And then I made a bunch of new best friends, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would see the entire writing staff, the cast, the crew, the familial aspect of the show that often doesn't happen, on a, on a t- even, even a good TV show that just often doesn't gel on a personal level. And that's not bad or good. That's just the way some things are. This show was from really... Day one, kind of blessed to feel familial uh, in a way. And so that was also wonderfully surprising. So, I guess my takeaway that, that I'm going to try to apply to whatever I do next and try to apply to uh, even aspects of my own life that have nothing to do with my career is don't be afraid to say, I don't know. And don't be afraid to say, I'm not sure. Uh, embrace your ignorance, try to drop your prejudice, try to drop your preconceptions, stay open to things and, you know, make your work environment as fun as you possibly can because you actually get better work out of people when they're having fun and they're getting along and your own life is a better life that way. So I'll miss all those aspects of the show, but I want to take them with me to the next thing I do. You
5: know, the culture of this show was so incredible. I have a two-part answer, but I'm going to try and make it quick. But I, I, I think I mostly attribute this culture to you, John, because uh, you know it was the yes, we had really great chemistry in the writers' room, but the the going to work was respectful and professional, but also really fun and warm. John is a very experienced TV producer, which is why we had cocktail hour and grill day. (laughs) And I I carry that into the room I'm running now where we're having things like Lumber Sexual Monday because (laughs) we're all in Zoom. Uh, But uh, uh, that, and also, you know, John was my first boss and he he really gave me a lot of rope to hang myself with. Like he really um, invited me to do a lot of producing for my first job. And this show, um, most of the writing staff started as assistants. By the time we got to season five, pretty much everybody had started um, fetching coffee and answering phones and got a shot and took their shot and got promoted because they earned it. And um, I I really learned um, how to create a culture like that, mostly from um, John, who has sort of an invisible ascot and smoking jacket on at all times, (laughs) uh, if not literally. (laughs) And then personally. When I got into this business, I thought I was too weird to be a creator of TV. Um, I I got into this business about 15 or 16 years ago now. Amazingly, this was the time when all of the CSIs were happening, and I discovered I could mimic other people's voices in a script, so I knew I would be able to work. But I thought that the stuff that was meaningful to me was too niche and that I wasn't going to get a shot. And the, the business has evolved in this fascinating way. I don't know where it's going right now with the pandemic, but I will say in general, it has evolved to require more weirdness, more specificity, mm. um, more burning passion. And, and the requirement is no longer to appeal to everyone. It's to be laser sharp in the story that you want to tell. And, this was the first time that um because the room is so collaborative and because John is such an intensely collaborative partner that I was in a situation where it was like, well, what does your gut say that this should be? Um, Not what does your gut say the creator would have done, which is what I did on shows, shows like Supernatural. Oh. But, you know, what does your gut say the point of this is? And, you know, it's that's a, a – I'm not going to lie. There's like a, I. I There were some nights I didn't sleep because I was scared that I was, um, you know, going to fuck it all up, uh, having that kind of power over the story um, so frequently. But this is this this is the show, I think, where I grew up as an artist in this industry and where I um, uh, in many ways found my true voice. Um, that I think I can now take with me. I think being a writer is a really long road. I think that's one of the luckiest things about it. If you don't like stare too hard at it, the fact that we could do this for our entire lives and continue to incrementally get just a little better, a little better with everything we suffer through, <laughs> every script we try to make better. And I think this show is one of the biggest gifts that of my lifetime that way. It taught me that a story can be so many things that I thought it wasn't allowed to be and that your hero can be so many people I didn't think were allowed to be in the center of the story. Oh. So, um, you know, I'm never going back. I'm never going to write that stupid, boring, ordinary stuff. Um, again, if the show if a show doesn't check at least six or ten of the million boxes that this show checked for all of us, then I'm just going to pass on it um, because now I'm completely spoiled. Uh, so, yeah. And I'm smiling while I say it. That's because, like, otherwise, I honestly might cry. So.
4: <laughs> there's Come been a on. lot of that. Come on. <laughs> gonna... cry, cry, <laughs> cry. 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 Cry.
5: Now I just to
0: punch you. <laughs> <laughs> Back to that Katie comparison.
4: Who, uh... <laughs> oh, by the way, I was also supposed to die in the pilot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or you just on
4: Jade.
2: <laughs> yeah, she was Amanda Orloff from the books.
0: Yeah. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Well, uh. Sarah, John, Henry, Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us today and more to the point for devoting so much of your lives to creating this wonderful show, to putting so much into it. Um, I know we've talked today about a lot of things that we loved, some things that we didn't like, some things that other people didn't like, but, uh, and I know we didn't get everything we wanted even independent of that, like a sixth season. Mm. But Mm. we want you to know just how grateful we are to you for everything you've given to us and everyone who watched this show and for putting your heart and soul into it. So thank you. Thank
5: you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for this
4: podcast. (laughs)
6: Mind slut. I think I wanna fuck this sandwich.